<laughs> and we're back <laughs> on another rousing holiday-themed episode of Loathsome Things, a horror movie podcast. John is here with me. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm, I'm doing, uh, I'm feeling jolly, sir. Oh, yeah? And, uh, John, why is that? Well, well, Josh, I'm I'm feeling jolly because today we're going to be discussing a fine, fine motion picture. Oh, what would what, what would that be? <laughs> well, funny you should ask. <laughs> we're going to be discussing the classic and uh, one of the uh, most influential horror films of the modern era, the 1974 slasher. Uh, <laughs> Black Christmas made by Bob Clark. Holy shit, John. I know. Is that the same year that he released Death Dream? It's, it's amazing. What a fucking amazing time to be alive. 1974. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this movie. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It is it is surprisingly good. Yeah, it's 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 incredible considering that it it basically created an entire genre. Yeah, um uh, if you if you have it, I would highly suggest going back and listening to us review Death Dream. That was a movie that surprised both of us. Mm-hmm. And I actually hatched this harebrained scheme that we will uh, describe at some point during this episode i don't know when oops um of of doing a uh, black christmas back uh, just before we did death dream Th- that movie i'd never seen and it was surprising and this movie i had like just seen for the first time and i was like wow that movie's really good it's always been one of those movies that i've like oh i've heard about you know whatever it's just one of those weird christmas horror movies but mm-hmm. uh oh and it's supposed to be like quote unquote influential and then when i watched it i was just blown away yeah it's it's incredibly well made um it's it's got a lot of life in it and and uh some some pretty fun performances very disturbing uh, uh story and uh it's it's surprisingly effective yeah yeah, it is. It 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 has aged well. Yeah. Um. Other than maybe the attire and wallpaper. Yeah. Uh. It has aged incredibly well. And even then, seeing that those like curtains <laughs> and fur coats was very entertaining. No, that was great. It was really great seeing all that crazy stuff. Black Christmas is incredible. Go watch the 1974 Black Christmas by Bob Clark. Even if you've already seen it. Go watch it again. It's it's readily available and amazing. Yeah, it is. It rewards repeat listens, and you can watch it for free on and a few spots. So definitely watch it. Or and and as Josh says, watch it again. Yeah, watch it again. It's it's great. I I watched it. Uh, well, we'll we'll I won't do the spoiler. That's a spoiler. Never mind. Um, let's see. <laughs> this movie stars Olivia Hussey as Jess. Olivia Hussey is most famous for her role as Juliet in Franco Zeffirelli's 1968 adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. And she is stunning in this movie. Yeah, she's she's drop-dead gorgeous. I just 
wow. They're like, hey, let's put her in different kinds of lighting. This is great. <laughs> yeah, she's fantastic. When we watched that, that was the go-to movie for my literature teachers throughout high school when they had nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. Was watch this movie? You watch Romeo and Juliet. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> like, as if, because it, you know, had some sort of tie to literature. <laughs> <laughs> All I know is it had boobs in it, so we were happy. Like one and a half boobs. I know. (laughs) Uh, This movie also stars Margot Kidder as Barb. Uh, If you're like, hey, I know the name Margot Kidder, but I don't know where she's from. You would probably know her as Lois Lane from the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. Yeah, she's great in this, too. You might also know her as Kathy Lutz from the Amityville Horror. That's right. Yeah, she is. She is fantastic in this. She has a great sequence about turtles fucking. <laughs> I love Margot Kidder. I always have. Yeah. Uh, this movie also strongly features Andrea Martin as Phil. Um, mm-hmm. This is right at the beginning of her career. She would go on to be a mainstay on SCTV. She played Ishka on season three, episode 23 of Deep Space Nine as a female Ferengi. Wow, that's so crazy. You know, I... I recognized her from uh, uh, from SCTV. Well, no, from SCTV. I didn't. I did, and I I recognized that name. And I'm like, man, that sounds like the same lady. That can't possibly be her. It's her. Yeah, it's her. She's she's like the part of the main cast of SCTV. That's fantastic. She was great on that show, and she is possibly most famous for being Aunt Vola in the Big Fat Geek Greekiverse. Oh wow! Okay, Big Fat Greekiverse. Yeah, Greekiverse. Yeah, she's the one where in the first bit, my big fat Greek wedding movie, she's all like, uh, I have a conjoined twin. They thought it was a tumor, but when they opened it up, there was teeth and hair. (laughs) That's not gross. Yeah, it turns out that that's a real kind of tumor. I looked it up, I saw pictures, and I wished I hadn't. Yeah, I know. I know somebody that had that. (laughs) Did they still have it? Uh, No, they had it removed. They had I I didn't know the person very well. They worked with someone that I was dating, and uh, the you know the story was that she had gone to have so this tumor removed, and then when they removed it, it had teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, "Wow, I'm going to try to be clinical about this, but I don't think it's going to work." <laughs> <Teeth>. <laughs> I am really struggling with your teeth. Keep that in a jar. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Andrea Martin also, also plays Miss Mac in the 2006 film adaptation, uh, or in the 2006 film Black Christmas. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so she, she double dipped on this. Yeah, she double dipped it. Yeah. Let's see. This movie also features Cardelia. Yeah, Cardelia. Yep. Yeah. Is that how it is? I think that's how I've always pronounced it. I don't know if it's right. Okay. Uh, you might know him as Dave from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes. He's uh, pretty iconic. Yeah. He is a horrible man in this movie. He's really a piece of human trash unnecessarily sweaty in a movie where everyone else is cold he is just like dripping with intensity there's even a scene where he's outside with no jacket just being horrible (laughs) (laughs) he's really terrible 
This movie also features John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. You might know him as Lieutenant Thompson in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Or even as Roper in Enter the Dragon. Yeah. Which came out one year before this movie. So this dude was like marshalling his arts at this point. So good. Uh, You also might know him from such great horror films as Queen of Blood, Blood Beast from Outer Space, Blood Salvage, and Blood Beach. So much blood. Not related movies, tons of blood. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we also have Art Hindle as Chris. You might perhaps know him better as Ted Jarvis in Bob Clark's 1981 film Porky's, or as Mitchell in Jeremy Gillespie and Stephen Kostensky's The Void. Nice. Yes. Porky's mentioned in there. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and for a little bit of comic relief, finally, there is Doug McGrath as the clueless Sergeant Nash. Doug would also reappear in Porky's as Coach Warren, the guy who kept referring to another gym coach as Lassie. And he also <laughs> played Benchley in John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a crazy one. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, well, we got him in here somehow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, this cast is huge compared to what we normally have going on. Yeah, that's true. Because that isn't even mentioning everyone. Like, I forget the name of the uh, the actor that plays Claire, but like for someone that doesn't get a lot of lines, she gets a lot of screen time. She sure does. She yeah. doesn't have to do much, but she's there. She has to do one thing really well, and she nails it. <laughs> she really does. <laughs> so good. There's also a kitty in here, and that's always good. I feel like it's been a while since we've had a good kitty show up. We've had, we, it has been a while, and, and he's also got a great name, so that that's even better. What? Uh, Claude? Claude. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also all of the variety of subnames, like Claudikins. Yeah, that's right. Oh, Claudikins. St. Claudstopher. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Excellent stuff. So, so yes, go, go watch this movie. Go watch Porky's as well. Go watch Death Dream. Go watch the entire early Bob Clark catalog. Maybe not the later stuff. Yeah, he slips a little later on. He gets a little worse. (laughs) But early on, he was on his game. Yes. Uh, John, are there any things that you would like to say, mention, reference, and or do before we head on into this here movie talk? Uh, I can't think of anything. All right. Well, then, listeners, prepare your ears for spoilers, because I hear they come. Here come the spoilerin'. The movie opens on a house from the exterior with Oh Holy Night playing, and we can hear spooky wind while the credits roll. Yeah, and a dog barking. <laughs> yes. And I was immediately, I was taken back to a death dream where the credits rolled as his, you know, near-death experience. Yeah. And I was glad it didn't happen here, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We see it that it's set in a sorority house, Pi Kappa Sigma. Mm-hmm. And I had to go look that up because I wanted to make sure that the things on the door matched everything else. And it made me realize that... uh I don't understand why Greek uh, organizations are always like using the same letters. Like that, you don't see a lot of like upsilons and iotas in yeah. Greek culture. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. I also don't know why 
they didn't even bother to uh, match up the Greek letters for the different locations in the house where it was shown. <laughs> like, there's a picture on the wall that has a completely different sorority oh, really? configuration on it. <laughs> it's, it's like Delta Epsilon. Like, you know, it's like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you just gathered a bunch of pictures and hung them on the wall. <laughs> Generic Greek stuff, whatever. It's fine. It's, it's okay. No one cares. Let's see. We see the heavy breathing and occasionally snorting camera angle approach the home, look up at the second floor windows, look in on the girls having a good time inside the house. We see Barb come in, or Barb uh, uh, sees that the front door is open. He says, who left the front door open? <laughs> That's Margot Kidder. Yeah, Margot Kidder as Barb. Uh, we see the camera climbing up some trellis work. Inside, they're talking about work. The phone rings. Jess answers it like a complete British asshole. She's like, <laughs> hello? <laughs> Her accent is Pardon? just brutal. God. <laughs> She has like the most, the, just the weirdest, like stiffest accent. Yeah, and it's it's super out of place in this movie. This movie is very strange on like the 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 tone of everything because like she's all kinds of fancy British. All the other girls around her are just like real earthly American girls. Mm -hmm. uh, but then Mr. Harrison is like stick all the way up the butt, like <laughs> taut, and uh, it's very strange. Well, you can see that, that, you know, that the way that the culture was changing in the 70s so that the you know, young people were, you know, kind of going out on a limb that people had never really gone on before. I mean, the world was changing so fast that from one generation to the next, it was pretty dramatic. Yeah. Kind of you really see it kind of overplayed with Mr. Harrison and, and the, <laughs> the posters on the wall and stuff. <laughs> yes. The guy who says like two words and then goes for about an hour through the movie and says almost nothing. Mm -hmm. Just looks disapprovingly at everything. <laughs> looks disapprovingly and then at the end passes out. <laughs> Faints. <laughs> Although, you know, at that point I feel like he's had a pretty hard time. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, he's been through quite a bit. Nothing happened to him. That's right. <laughs> So it turns out that the person on the phone is just someone calling for Barb. It's Barb's mom. But the uh, it does set the uh, expectation that Jess will indeed be answering the phone in this movie. <laughs> yes, that's, she's the designated phone answerer. Yes. Uh, we see the uh, camera enter the attic from the outside from the trellis work that it had been climbing earlier. In the attic, there is a birdcage, a fancy merry-go-round horse rocking chair all kinds of stuff all of it covered with cobwebs yeah a, a, just an attic full of things that a sorority house would never have it's so full of things that at some point they they installed a pulley system to hoist things up into the attic <laughs> yeah that's like they went to it's like they went to central casting and hired the most stereotypical creepy attic they could get a hold of <laughs> You just know there's like a uh, trunk full of old photos and diplomas somewhere. <laughs> there's like, a, you know, there's like a sweater mannequin somewhere that someone's going to think is a person. Yes. <laughs> it's like, could we get more cobwebs, please? Although I will, I will congratulate them. They didn't just drape white sheets over everything. 
That's true. Also, just to rewind a little bit, there's a scene where they're <laughs> where they're in the living room. <laughs> there's a scene where they're they're in the living room and they show the Christmas tree, and apparently the the Christmas tree is made out of white fur. <laughs> yes. It just looks like white hair with weird lights all over it. Yes, it it looks like the Christmas tree is uh, wrapped in silk and is currently metamorphosing into a butter tree. Yeah, so now we can get back to the story properly. (laughs) Let's see. Oh, oh, and we can see that from upstairs, the camera can hear and see people uh, when they're on the phone. So we Mm -hmm. get that information that he can just overhear whatever from uh, from the attic. Uh, mm-hmm. We hear Barb having a conversation with her mom uh, where she calls her mom a, quote, real gold-plated whore. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> and then it turns out, well, uh, we see Claire and Chris at the front door. Chris would appear to be wearing a Chewbacca skin coat. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> Over the course of this film, we will see that this is either his only coat or his very favorite coat. It's really hard to tell which. <laughs> I mean, it, it is quite a coat. It is. It is a spectacular coat. It's, it's intense. <laughs> There's some weird business between Barb and her mom, something about going skiing, and it feels like Jess agrees to go skiing with her out of pity, but it's not really easy to tell what's going on there. Yeah, that was a little strange yeah. like, with this weird skiing subtext. Which it, it turns out that that's just uh, there to play as an expectation of what things are supposed to happen moving forward. Mm-hmm. The phone rings. Jess goes to answer the phone. She calls all the girls over to her because it's him again, the moaner. <laughs> that's right. The moaner has called again. <laughs> yes, the moaner and everyone gathers around to listen to what the moaner has to say. It's the Mona. The the person on the phone goes through a bunch of different voices, little baby voices, baby cries, uh, women screaming, man growling, piggy snorts. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. It goes through them all. And uh, here's where we're going to say Oprah's least favorite word, like this movie <laughs> does over and over again, because he starts calling them pig cunt. Yeah, he uses that word quite often. Uh, he says, let me lick your pretty piggy cunt. Yes, cunt, cunt. Yes. So many cunt. And it's, and it's all of this. <laughs> all of this crazy like voice stuff going on. And he's like giggling and having a great time. <laughs> says, suck my juicy cock. <laughs> yes. Which, like, that's just normal now. It's like, Jesus, dude. Eventually... Barb confronts him, calls him a creep, where he says, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) And they hang up the phone. Uh, Claire doesn't think that Barb should provoke him like that. And then we get in here, they're talking about how a a, uh, girl in town was raped at some point in the recent past. And uh, we get the, (laughs) from a movie that talks about pig cunt, we get what I think is possibly the most horrible line in this movie which is from barb when she says you can't rape a townie <laughs> yeah that's pretty rough yeah. <laughs> you can't rape a townie it's like oh man <laughs> some serious social discourse there oh, Clark. <laughs> yeah 
fun little bit of trivia whenever all of the things that the moaner was saying on the phone whenever they were filming that scene it was just bob clark saying mildly threatening things to the actors and then they like dubbed all of that in afterwards oh really (laughs) (laughs) that's hilarious yeah (laughs) i'm sure the first time they watched that movie they're like oh my god Christ, I would have reacted more if I knew that. Yeah, we're just like standing around having kind of a good time. He's all, I'm I'm watching, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) I threaten you (laughs) from a great distance. (laughs) There's, uh, There's lots of business about Claire having a hard time fitting in and about Barb making fun of her for virginity or not virginity, whatever the case may be. Mm hmm this point mrs mac comes home she's just piled on with presents that she brought home and uh she's generally complaining about the way things are out there while keeping a long-stemmed cigarette in between her teeth yes she's the house mother the house mother and she is fantastic (laughs) she's so great she's she's just amazing she's the glue that holds this movie together (laughs) yeah i loved her yeah we, we see that Claire has gone back to her room. She finds the kitty Claude in her room. She's like, hey, Mrs. Mac has been looking for you. You should go. And then she like loses track of the cat while doing other things. And then she hears meowing coming from the closet. She goes to see, hey, what's going on? Claude, is that you? Is someone there? And it turns out that indeed there is someone there. It's the moaner. And he strangles her with a dry cleaning plastic. Yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah, just just hiding behind it, watching, kind of like, and and just just gets her. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. Horrible man. Downstairs or whatever, the rest of the girls who are still alive have a gift for Mrs. Mac. It is a ugly nightgown. Just a hideous nightgown. It is just a gross-ass, pattern, flannelly, thick nightgown. And they all want her to put it on right now. There's even, like, a scene where she's, like, not quite looking directly into the camera, but not looking at any of them. And she's like, oh, I don't have any reason why I would like this. (laughs) It's great. She she clearly hates it. Yeah, it's hideous. Uh, but then again, I like watching this movie, <laughs> seeing the wallpaper and other things. I'm not sure if it's actually hideous back then or if like it was nice or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, maybe she had terrible 70s taste and that was actually awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, we will see that she does indeed have terrible 70s taste in alcohol. <laughs> yes, yes, she does. The worst. <laughs> this is when we get our first strong whiff of the film's sense of humor, which is a lot of adults reacting to the shenanigans of youth type humor. <laughs> you know the type. It's great. We see that the moaner was watching and retreats back up to the attic while they're having all of this fun downstairs. Uh, Mrs. Matt gets the girls to go to bed. She goes to her bookshelf where there's the encyclopedia collection and she picks out B for booze. You opens it up and there's a hidden bottle of, quote, Italian Swiss colony straight sherry. (laughs) (laughs) Dear God. Yeah. And you can see it sloshing around. It's like 
the worst consistency. <laughs> it's like sugar water with sand. Yes. And I looked it up and it that's a real that's that's just they got some of that. <laughs> yeah. That looks repellent. Italian Swiss colony straight sherry. It's now called Italian Swiss colony American sherry. Oh, that makes it sound so much better. Yeah, not confusing at all. Italian, Swiss, American, Sherry. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Uh, The phone rings, and it's Peter. Peter is calling for Jess. She's like, oh, it's too bad you couldn't make it to the party. And that's the first thing that we get. Well, that's the first time we find out about Peter, but it's also like a little bit suspicious that he wasn't able to be there. Mm -hmm. Ooh. Dun, dun. Yes. Over the course of their phone conversation, we start to get the feeling that there might be some trouble in paradise between Jess and Peter, but we don't really get a good sense of what that is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Peter does either. <laughs> no. <laughs> Switch to Mrs. Mac theatrically sing brushing her teeth in the mirror while still wearing <laughs> her horrible nightgown and her hat and making faces at herself in the mirror. <laughs> Once she realizes that she is done brushing just the front of her teeth, (laughs) she realizes that even though she's at a sink with water, what she really needs is something to swish her mouth with. So she looks around in the uh, in the medicine cabinet. There's nothing there. Oh, and then she remembers (laughs) she lifts the lid off the (laughs) tank of the toilet. There's a string tied. She pulls it all the way out and it's deep in there and at the other end of the string is another bottle of italian swiss colony straight sherry in the water but this one's label has like started to slide (laughs) she keeps it in the toilet tank of that hideous maroon toilet yeah it's gross and then she takes a pull of the sherry swishes it around in her mouth and spits it out because she just wanted it to She's rinsed out her mouth with sherry. How horrible was that taste? (laughs) Toothpaste and sherry. Oh, disgusting. It's really gross. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) She then notices her nightgown in the mirror and says to herself, I wouldn't wear this to have my liver out. (laughs) Which is probably going to happen. Yeah. And then we see outside Jess is looking for Claire. We switch to Claire. We see Claire is dead, staring into nothing. There's the clear plastic is still draped over her head with it like shoved into her mouth a little bit. She's rocking back and forth in a rocking chair, very Death Dream esque, mm-hmm. um, with a candle behind her while awesome, creepy piano strings effects, uh, piano string effects go on. And we hear the moaner creepily recite a nursery rhyme as the scene transitions onto, like, really fancy college buildings. Yeah, it was a really cool shot. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and I really like that, that like, plastic over her head because it's, um, you know, back whenever all horror was practical effects. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not, like, a big deal one, but it does remind you uh, that, you know, back then horror movie effects were basically the same thing as like like stage magician business you know right yeah they had a little hole cut in the plastic but it still looks really good yeah yeah i'd say that's a like sleight of hand stuff yeah outside the next day uh we see that it's a fancy ass college with 
cathedral-style buildings, and a very stiff, bald man, Mr. Harrison, is impatiently pacing in the center of the scene. He is then hit in the face by a snowball, knocking off his glasses <laughs> while maybe children laugh maniacally? Yeah, I was a little confused there. It's a little confusing. A guy comes over to help. He says, sorry, I should have kept a better watch on them. We see that there's a school bus in the background of this fancy college scene um to which mr harrison responds i think so he's like yeah well i said i was sorry man (laughs) like that makes it okay um so i guess the children that never appeared on the screen through a snowball from inside the school bus (laughs) yeah i didn't know they were keeping a fresh one yeah and then he stopped the school bus to help the man pick up his glasses i don't know and then was a dick about it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but it turns out that he can actually help Mr. Harrison with something because Mr. Harrison was supposed to meet his daughter here. We find out that his daughter's name is Claire. He's like, oh, yeah, they're over at this house. Um, switch to inside and uh, <laughs> we see a frotastic Santa cussing in front of children. Oh, that guy is amazing. He was in there earlier. He just has the the whitest afro possible he he's just ridiculous looking yeah and and a big old big old mustache so he's just like a a a young self-pleased uh what is it gene shallot is that his name yeah that's who he looks like exactly (laughs) it's incredible but he's playing santa and he's not having a good time so he just keeps cussing in front of children uh, he's mad because Phil was supposed to go away with him for the weekend, but she's going skiing with Barb's gold-plated mother instead. <laughs> I don't really get what's going on with that, no. but okay. I love the scene where he's sitting there, he's got the kid in his lap, and he goes, Oh, ho, 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 fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and he just keeps cussing over the course of it, and they even like have the kids address it like, Yeah, he's naughty. Yeah, the inappropriate humor in this movie is fantastic. Yes. For as horrific as this movie is, its sense of humor does not stop. It's true. Then we see Mr. Harrison makes it over to the girls' sorority house. That's where it it pans across the Express Thyself poster with Mm -hmm. the the granny uh, slowly reaching out to flip you off. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And Mrs. Mack is talking to him. She explains that Claire's things are all packed. (laughs) <laughs> he looks at the poster disapproving mrs mac just tries to smile in a way he's uh he's very disappointed and he says i intend to do something about this atmosphere and she sees that he hasn't noticed the nude butt peace poster behind her and puts her hand right over the butt so that maybe he won't see it <laughs> i know it's like as if that won't won't get his attention you can still clearly see that it is two people sandwiched on top of each other they are they don't have any other clothes but maybe maybe there's just not a butt under her hand <laughs> yeah and he says uh, that he didn't send his daughter here to be drinking and picking up boys uh, she's like, well, I'm sure she's just, you know, wherever everything's fine. So he's going to go check at the, the frat house where she might be. She needs a ride. So he's going to give her a ride there as she goes inside she, to get her things. He does, in fact, see the butt <laughs> in case you were worried. Yeah. Surprise. There's a butt. <laughs> yeah. She mocks him in the mirror while drinking and putting on her hat. Uh, She complains that she's not responsible for the morals of every girl in the house. And quote, 
These broads would hump the leaning tower of Pisa if they could get up there. End quote. <laughs> it's pretty pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> These broads. What a horrible woman. I also really love that she has a public voice and then she has her to herself whisper voice. <laughs> She's great. She is fantastic. As she's getting ready, she hears Claude the cat and goes searching for him while she's looking around for him. She spills the contents of her purse and says, balls. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And then as she's stooped over on the stairs, picking up the contents of her purse, she's yelling, God damn it, Claude, you little prick. And just as she says little prick, Mr. Harrison comes up level with her as he ascends the stairs and makes eye contact with her. <laughs> and is just looking at her like she's disgusting. She's like, oops. She says, this is very kind of you, Mr. Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We see them uh, from the window attic. We see them getting into a car. It it pans out and we can see that Claire is just barely visible inside the window, but it doesn't quite look like a person because she's in a bag. Mm -hmm. Then we see it jumps and uh, Jess is in a very huge fancy room with Peter. She is wearing a very fluffy pink hat. And she tells Peter that she is pregnant and that she doesn't want it. And he doesn't want her to have an abortion. Yeah, it's so great because she's got this giant pink beret. And he he has this ridiculous green turtleneck. They look so 70s. Oh, yeah. All of this is happening around a, like, grand piano. It's a Steinway, even. Yeah, like having this incredibly uncomfortable conversation about about like being pregnant and having an abortion and all this stuff. All of this in a like music room set for acoustics and everything they say echoes. Yeah. Like they even caught that. They did the sound design for it. They're like, oh, yeah, we want y'all to sound like you're in this big room. It's conservatory. Conservatory. I don't know what that is. It's just a, a room on Clue, right? Yeah, it's just a big fancy room that looks like it came out of Harry Potter. Yes. He calls her selfish, tells her to get out of here, and goes back to practicing piano in his enormous room. He wants to talk to her later tonight, and she is like, I'm not going to change my mind. He was like, well, shut up and just listen to me tonight. But he says it more fancy than that. Yeah, he's a real douchebag. He is horrible. (laughs) Can't imagine why she wouldn't want to have a kid with him. Yeah. Jesus, have one of those, another one of those running around. (laughs) Yeah. Poor man's Vigo Mortensen. I can't do that, Dave. (laughs) Wow, you really suck, Dave. (laughs) And then Mr. Harrison has made it to the fraternity where the Santa business is going on. Apparently it's for underprivileged children. And he's just sitting there watching Barb feed alcohol to a child. (laughs) so good he's on the phone with his wife saying that he won't be home tonight that it's you know we're still working it out and it's not whatever and she that says i think the little bugger schnockered (laughs) son of a bitch it's so good and he's just drinking more of her alcohol just chugging it away it's awesome (laughs) back at the house the phone rings and jess answers it it's the moaner uh, where we get a really good line of 
what your mother and I must know is, where did you put Agnes, Billy? Yeah. But the voice is, is real. I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's really strange. Yeah. And it switches around a lot. Apparently, there were at least five different actors used to do the voice of the moaner. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Wow. I looked at the cast and I was like, well, who plays Billy the Moaner? Yeah. There's a bunch of people and apparently some of them, Bob Clark has forgotten who they are. Really? Yes. That's nice. Yeah. Good job, Bob. (laughs) Rest in power. Bob Clark, totally forgetful guy. (laughs) Um, We see that Mr. Harrison, Phil, and Barb go to the police station to report that Claire is missing. And they are reporting all of this to Sergeant Nash. Tells Barb to shut up because he doesn't like the way she talks. She says that for a public servant, your attitude sucks. And then she cracks open a beer after she turns around that she like had in her purse. One of those giant 70s beers. Yeah. Yeah. With the weird like old school pop can everything. (laughs) It's like an inch thick. Yeah. Yeah. A pound of foam pours out when you pop it. So good. Sergeant Nash says that the girls are usually just shacked up when this sort of stuff happens. And uh, he asks Barb for the phone number to the sorority house, to which she says, oh, it's fellatio 20880. (laughs) Apparently the new exchange is FE. And, you know, that's how things worked back then. (laughs) He gives her a sincere thanks after she helps him spell fellatio. And we see the joke completely go over his head. (laughs) He's a total idiot. Yeah. So he, on some note in the police department, there is is a note that says that the whatever girl's uh, sorority house's phone number is fellatio20880. (laughs) Fantastic. I hope that doesn't come back up later. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Claire goes to hockey mask practice to ask Chris if he knows where Claire is. And it's just like straight up in that old school hockey mask. And I was like, oh, wow, this movie did. (laughs) Yeah, it did everything first. Even got the hockey mask. And what a hockey mask it was. Whoa, yeah. (laughs) So brightly colored. Very decorative. Like it wasn't just like the plain white one. No, no, no. No, this was a fancy hand painted one. Fancy college hockey mask. He thought that she went home with, you know, to spend the holidays with her parents. She tells him the cops didn't take the the complaint seriously because they think that she's shacked up with someone somewhere. And since it's not him, it must be someone else. Mm-hmm. And then we switch to a sweaty sequence of Peter playing the piano or something in front of three very snooty dudes. Yeah, apparently Peter has decided to play a free jazz improvisation for his recital. And for some reason, the, the judges are not impressed. I can't, <laughs> can't figure out why. I don't know a whole lot about music. So there were points at which I was like, is this good piano music? And then there are other times where I was like, I don't think it is. <laughs> it was just so feverish and bizarre. Like, like dude, relax. I guess they just don't understand his genius. Yeah, it was so stupid. It was obviously they were supposed to be, you know, like kind of stuffy and conservative. But then at the same time, what he was playing was was basically just maniacal. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't sound like a song. 
He was like hammering the keys. Yeah, it was it was real, real intense. And he was being very intense about it. <laughs> yeah, he was a little too into it. And then that's over. Um, back at the police station, a concerned Mrs. Quaife is describing Janice, her daughter, who plays the clarinet and didn't come home. And she is only 13. Yeah. Just then, Chris busts in, still wearing Chewbacca, calls Sergeant Ness a stupid son of a bitch with a big mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Which is true. Yeah. Then Lieutenant Fuller comes in, Chris switches to talking to him, and apparently he's on a first-name basis with all of these police officers. He just calls them by their first names. Yeah, he's Lieutenant Fuller. He's cool. Lieutenant Fuller even like comes in and is like, Chris, how's your brother? It's like, okay, I see. I get what's going on here. We've got a good old boy situation. That's fine. Uh, so so now Chris is going to talk to Lieutenant Fuller about the situation and get him to take it a little bit more seriously. Yeah. Meanwhile, Mr. Harrison has returned to the sorority house and he'll be staying there overnight or something. And he is worried and can't even eat his food. Poor Mr. Harrison. He's yeah, He feels like he should be doing something. He's probably right, except he isn't doing anything. Yeah, and no matter what he did at this point, it wouldn't make a difference. Yeah, she won't be any less dead. Not for Claire, anyway. Maybe, maybe... (laughs) Might have saved other folk, yeah. Although I don't know what he would do about it. No, he's pretty useless. Yeah, he might bald at someone. He might distractedly leer somebody to death. Yeah, even that, even his disapproving stare is very ineffective. <laughs> like he does, he, he he just has no expression. Yeah, nobody's impressed by Mister Harrison. Yeah, who somehow managed to fuck somebody and have a child. <laughs> yeah, have a have a college child that doesn't fit. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Mister Harrison, you dick. And marries a, or dates a Chewbacca-esque goalie. <laughs> Who's clearly gay and try, <laughs> tries to play it out by hand-painting his hockey mask. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> he doesn't want to take it in the mouth. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, though, Barb is drunk on the couch and she has a Playboy centerfold open and it looks like maybe she's been cutting bits out of it. <laughs> yeah, Barb is, Barb's got issues. Yeah. And she is fantastic. I love her. She starts telling a sloppy drunk story about how a subspecies of turtles can screw for three days without stopping. <laughs> and to accentuate this, she slams her hands together to simulate the experience of two turtles slowly fucking. A womb, a womb, a womb. <laughs> she says, quote, you don't believe me, do you? But how could I make something like that up? <laughs> She's like, I saw it for myself. Yeah, I went down to the zoo and watched them. It was very boring. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I mean, I didn't stay for three days, but I did watch the zebras and they lasted about 30 seconds. Yeah, and then she starts laughing and says, premature ejaculation, and then keeps <laughs> laughing. I also like when she says, I'm lucky if I get three minutes. <laughs> yeah. All of this to Mr. Harrison, who is just trying to worry about his daughter. (laughs) And he does not think this is funny. 
And that's whenever she gets maudlin because the drunk is going down now. Mm-hmm. And then she says, you think it's my fault, don't you? I drove her. You think I drove her away. And if it turns out that she's dead, you're going to blame me. Uh, Phil is there. She says, Barb, you're drunk. Go to bed, which she does. Amazingly, she takes her advice. Uh, switch back to the conservatory and be- Peter gets all destroyed and ruins the Steinway with a stanchion. Yeah, he goes completely ape shit and just destroys a, <laughs> destroys a Steinway. What a dick. Yeah, just just flips the back open and pounds away at the at the piano strings, which is pretty great because throughout this movie, there's like lots of, you know, not piano music, but mm-hmm. sounds made using piano strings and, you know, yeah. might tie those themes together. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> um, we hear weird piano string stuff while watching Peter and Jess come in and talk to Mr. Harrison, uh, and everyone else at the house. Mrs. Mack is going to her sister's for the holidays and might not be here when they get back. Um, But yeah, they're going to uh, go out and do something, and it turns out what they're going to do is um, the police have organized a search party in the park for Mrs. Quaife's daughter and for Claire. Yeah. Back at the house, Mrs. Mack is singing, packing, and drinking, as she is wont to do. We see... Claude the cat is in the attic on Claire's lap, licking the plastic that was used to smother her. Yeah, that was great. Good kitty stuff. We never. I don't think we really get a good feel for. <laughs> do things go well for Claude? Yeah, I don't. We don't really. I don't think there's any resolution for Claude, is there? No, I don't think so. I think this is the last time we see him, which is pretty daunting. <laughs> Poor Claude. Yeah. Mrs. Matt goes in search of Claude, hears something upstairs while we hear piano strings business going on. She goes up into the attic and yells at Claude, how'd you get up here? We see the moaner's hands gripping a pulley that has a hook on it, which I guess is used to hoist all of this garbage up here. And uh, we see Mrs. Mrs. Mack get uh, clocked by the pulley. And we hear her scream and we see from below her getting dragged up into the attic while continuing to scream. That's right. It's great. The taxi that was supposed to pick her up gets fed up and gets back in his cab and drives away. At which point the moaner, or what we might call Billy now, starts throwing a temper tantrum in the attic for some reason. Yeah, I didn't understand why. Yeah, I didn't know I did that. Yeah, maybe he really liked looking at that uh, taxi. I guess so. He really he really likes taxi cabs. Yeah. Or maybe he is just entirely unhinged and Well, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what your mother and I must know is. <laughs> um I like that even like part of his thing is like pushing the rocking chair a little. Mm-hmm. So it keeps it moving. Yeah, and uh and it's from from Death Dream like like Bob Clark has some themes that he likes to return to. Mm -hmm. And the rocking chair is surprisingly prominent in his movies. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, totally prominently featured in 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 Death Dream for sure. And whenever you compare this with uh, Porky's, it's like, oh, there's a lot of pig genitalia. Okay. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Florida. (laughs) Baba. Bob has some pathology. Bob? 
Jess heads back home uh, from the search because it's too cold and they were all like cowering around a, a trash can fire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, nothing like an oil drum fire to keep you warm. Uh, we see, again, we see Claire is just barely visible through the window from outside. And we now see Mrs. Mac with the hook in her neck dangling a bit in the attic. Yes. Yes. Fantastic shot. Great shot. Someone starts screaming during the search party. Mr. Harrison uh, goes to look and looks down at the ground. His facial expression doesn't really change very much. But then when Mrs. Quaif arrives, he's there to comfort her as she begins to probably scream because it is her daughter that has been murdered. Yes, Janice. Janice has been murdered. Janice will never again play the clarinet. Oh, sad. Uh, at the house, the phone rings. Jess answers the phone again to choky baby sounds, saying, please help me, filthy Billy. I know what you did, Billy. Stupid Billy. All with the piano string sound going on behind it. <laughs> so weird. Yeah, it's it's really upsetting. <laughs> uh, we see someone walking down the stairs as Jess dials the phone. Uh, the, we see from the camera perspective walking down the stairs. And then there's a big reveal that that camera perspective walking down the stairs is Peter. Yes, dun-dun. She turns around, shocked. Peter, Jesus, you scared the hell out of me. Uh, we Turns out he was upstairs just having himself asleep because she took so long. Yeah, he got cold outside, so mm-hmm. he went in and had a little nippy nap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is, this is that conversation that they alluded to earlier where he's going to convince her to not have an abortion. Mm-hmm, by being a total prick. Yeah, but first, I'm sleepy. <laughs> um she he says weird evasive things she says why don't you quit attacking me and we'll have a rational adult conversation nope (laughs) that's not gonna happen yeah she ends up calling uh the police station to report you know all of this stuff she's like maybe i should report the moaner to the police so she calls and reports it to none other than sergeant nash Mm -hmm. uh she's telling all the details he's repeating all the details including the address mr harrison overhears that this is coming from uh you know oh it's six blah 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 or whatever it is i don't remember the name of it um and uh he thinks that that's interesting that is left hanging we go back to jess who tells peter about the murdered girl in the park and his response is well claire's all right though and he says i know you're upset but i've got something to tell you I'm leaving the conservatory. (laughs) (laughs) To which she says, oh my God, Peter, you dick, no one cares. Except she doesn't say that because she's so much nicer. She's so much nicer. (laughs) What? What? (laughs) Uh, Turns out that he's tired of living in a room and lining up for showers, which, yeah, okay. Uh, But yeah, quote, I'm leaving, I'm quitting the conservatory and we're getting married. Yeah, just in case you were wondering. Yeah, I've I've decided. She reminds him that she has her own ambitions. Uh, her ambition wasn't for him to be a concert pianist. She That was his dream, not hers. Her dreams are still things that she wants to do, and she hasn't decided to abandon them. And he says, uh, but what about all the things? And she says, quote, I don't want to marry you. And he replies, all right, what about the baby? 
What about the baby that you've already told me you don't want? Back at the police station, Lieutenant Fuller dresses down Sergeant Nash for not wanting to bother him with the obscene phone call business, even though it was from the house that a girl is now missing in on the same night that a girl was found murdered. And part of this is <laughs> Lieutenant Fuller takes the notes that he provided goes to uh goes to the phone to call the house to talk to them about it we see in the background there's another detective e-cop watching and giggling and when lieutenant fuller finally starts to dial the phone number the other cop he stops and the other car busts out and fuller starts laughing a little bit too summons sergeant nash back into the room and he's like, what is this? And he's like, oh, it's the new exchange. Fellatio. <laughs> Fellatio. They're like, eight, zero, zero, eight, or whatever. Fellatio is like, yeah, one of the girls gave it to me. <laughs> and they're like, the girls gave it to you, huh? <laughs> they just start laughing at him openly. And he looks bothered. And he's like, I know. It's something dirty, ain't it? And then he goes back to what he was doing before. <laughs> Guess what, Nash? You're a fucking idiot. <laughs> they even say that he wouldn't be able to pick his nose without written instructions. <laughs> That's right. I fucking love Bob Clark movies because here's all of this stuff and like everything's so heavy and and torturous, but there's just dumb jokes in here too. <sighs> Back at the house, Peter is all cry-faced near that weird cocoon Christmas tree. He even, like, like picks things off of it and gets all flingy and turny around. <laughs> weird hair tree. Yeah. Uh, he calls Jess a selfish bitch. Uh, you're talking about killing our baby as though you were having a wart removed. That becomes an important quote. Yeah. Um, Jess, let's get one thing straight. You're not going to abort that baby. And she's like, mm, you can't tell me what to do. And he, he's like, if you try getting an abortion, she yells at him to get out. And he tells her that she's going to be very sorry. All of uh, the piano string sounds go on as Peter leaves the house in a huff, uh, just as Phil and Lieutenant Fuller arrive with uh, Lineman Graham, who we have not met until this point. It's <laughs> yeah. a very weird role in this movie. Yeah, we see we see quite a bit of lineman Graham from here on out. Yeah, he's very actively on screen, um, but uh, but it's it's very interesting. Um, turns out that lineman Graham is going to tap the phone, but they have to like approve it, so she has to like sign a thing. And there's going to be a cop in a cop car or in an unmarked car outside just to keep them safe. Uh, he starts asking them questions about Claire. We hear the piano strings as the lineman works on the phone. Ooh. <laughs> um, and they tell him that, you know, she she's going to have to keep the moaner on the line for as long as possible for the tap to work, for the trace to work. That made me wonder, like, when this trope started, like, how long has this trope been a thing? I couldn't find super direct evidence of... Uh, this being a thing in earlier movies but i'm sure it is because like this was the towards the end of actually having that be the way that line taps work yeah it's it's it, yeah and, and that's something that continues even today in movies yeah today it doesn't make sense because that's not how phone taps work anymore <laughs> no not at all 
yeah, I don't I don't know when this came up, but I, I was interested in the history of it. I just couldn't find any good evidence to support this being like the movie that brought it about. But this movie sure does focus on it a lot. The old time based phone tap gag. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, it wasn't long enough. Going to have to wait for another call and make that one longer. Keep him on the line. <laughs> they 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 so overdo it in like this weird arcane gigantic phone warehouse facility where you can physically trace a phone call yeah (laughs) like find the location of the call in the room yeah you like you like have to find the little spot on these huge shelves and then lift up a like metal lid and underneath there is a number and then you have to communicate that number back to another guy who will then tell you some information so weird yeah i also like that he has a a mobile phone tap which is a one piece thing that has the like rotary dial on it Mm -hmm. that was awesome that was hacktastic yeah as fuller lieutenant fuller drives away we see peter lurking behind a tree while piano strings go (laughs) back inside phil is now having a hard time uh emotionally with all of this stuff she goes to bed that is one thing that this movie doesn't really nail is the uh progression of emotional upsetness yeah uh, of the individual characters because most of the time it just feels like they're all right with everything but then all of a sudden just i'm upset now yeah <laughs> but uh but i guess that might be how real people behave anyway <laughs> yeah well that's probably true too yeah um it, that's it. It's switching station. Line. We see lineman Graham does lots of business at the switching station. Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we see Billy the moaner. Uh, he's sitting in front of Claire and rocking the chair back and forth while a gross doll is in her lap. And he's mumbling to himself. Then we see him come down from the attic while Jess is waiting by the phone. The moaner enters Barb's room where she has passed out drunk. And we see the crystal long stemmed unicorn. Um, Jess hears Barb gasping. She goes up to see what's wrong. And it turns out that she is having asthma. She helps her with her inhaler. And she said that she had a nightmare and dreamed that someone was in her room. Uh, We see from the moaner's perspective, he's walking away, watching them talk. Um, and then you can hear just the, the, the fanciest little wasslers you can imagine from <laughs> the front porch. <laughs> That's right. Just uh, leaves Barb to pass back out and stands in the doorway. It's a pretty, pretty famous scene of mm-hmm. her um, listening to them sing Oh Come All Ye Faithful while bathed in the red glow of the Christmas lights around the wreath. Just fantastic. That great, yeah, that that great super saturated actual film look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks great. It's super striking and memorable, which is crazy for a film like this, like for one of the, the things to stick out so strongly is that. Yeah. Uh, but it's it sure there. Not as, maybe not as sticky-outy as Claire in the window, but, you know. Oh, yeah, this, this I mean, this, sh- this movie's f- filled with, like, great shots. Yeah. Yeah, and and this sequence right here is is perfection. It, yeah, just great because it keeps switching between Jess uh, listening to the the child carolers and and the close ups on the child carolers singing, 
O come all ye faithful. And then it also switches back to the moaner creeping around inside the house. We see him enter Barb's room. It focuses on the crystal unicorn. And then we hear him whispering, Agnes, it's me, Billy. It's all right, pretty Agnes. Don't, don't, don't you tell what we did, Agnes. And all of this <laughs> while still hearing, Oh, come all ye faithful by the carolers. And then we see him stab her over and over with the horn from the crystal unicorn and switching between all of this and the carolers the whole time. It is just great. It's great. And it's, it's, it's crazy to think that, that this was shot at a time where all this editing had to be done by hand. Yeah. They had to literally like cut film and tape it together. Yeah, I mean, there's and there's a lot of cuts in some of these scenes. Yeah, and this was this was not big budget at all. This was this was like this movie like made him king shit of Canada Mountain. Yeah, these and these were you know in Canada films are you know get they get funded partially by the government. Yeah, they have like you know and so it's it's you know and it's money is is I think it was like it cost like six hundred something thousand dollars to make. Which even then, I mean, obviously now that's nothing for a movie, but even then that wasn't a lot. Yeah, they, they weren't playing with a huge budget for this, but you can see the uh, love poured into it. Oh, the camera work is fantastic. Yeah, the camera work, the sound, all of it. Like this this movie just nails it on every front. It really does. Maybe not with the thing about the townie, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's, you know, it's a 70s movie. It's got some of that. That was a little, that was rough for, for a movie about, uh, guy murdering girls in a sorority house <laughs> that was just not what i was expecting yeah how you how it's impossible to rape the local girls because they'll sleep with anybody basically it's like okay oh so all of this happens uh a lady comes up and yells at the the woman leading the carols get the kids back in the car <laughs> <laughs> don't you know there's been a moita she she tells she tells Jess about it. And she's like, "Oh yes, I know." And then she's like, "Your phone's ringing." <laughs> so that those people are over with. Jess goes back in, inside. The phone is indeed ringing. It's the moaner. The sound coming through is a child crying. No, Billy, and it's interspersed with the lineman trying to trace the call and Lieutenant Fuller listening in with disgusted face. We hear we hear the moaner say. What your mother and I must know is just like having a wart removed. <gasps> Ooh. Yes. She hangs up. She says, oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, no trace. Too short of a call. Uh, Lieutenant Fuller asks her, what was that? Oh, my God reaction. And she's like, oh, no. And and he was like, well, who was that guy that was leaving when we came in? Uh, but then he gets distracted. And hangs up, says he'll have to call her back because uh, some guy comes in that he's uh, been arrested by like five cops because he shot a cop in the ass for trespassing on his land. It's so great. And the cops got his pants down and yeah. his shirt's covering his ass. It's got like little little bloody spots all over it because he's caught a, a quote, ass full of buckshot. Yeah, uh, I believe he threatens to shove the shotgun in his ass sideways. He does. Yeah, and if you come back, I'm going to shove it up there sideways. Yeah. This man, not killed by the police. No. <laughs> yeah. Bob Clark's police is really weird. Like, this <laughs> and Death Dream, like, the way that they are in these movies is very strange. I know. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for Lieutenant Fuller, I'd assume he hates them. Yeah, yeah. 
And then in Porky's too, there's a, there's, well, no, in Porky's, uh, not the second. As well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, (laughs) There's a a lot of weird cop business going on. Yeah, there, there is. That's true. Let's see. Jess admits that she's getting really scared to Phil. She's worried that Peter is doing this. Phil doesn't think it was Peter. Uh, Phil has come back from bed because she's like, why is there so much screaming in this house? And she was like, oh, no, it's nothing. That was just that was just a uh, Barb having a asthma attack. They go and they check to make sure that the cop's still outside. The phone rings. And it's Peter. And then Peter is now cry and sad and weird. He's like, please, Jess, we can't kill the baby. <laughs> and she's like, stop it, Peter. Tell me where you are. Uh, he hangs up. There's no trace again. Got to keep him on the line longer. Just these calls just aren't long enough. I know. Uh, the phone rings. Jess answers it. And now you, you can see that she's like, oh, my God, so many phone calls. <laughs> It's Lieutenant Fuller this time. He asks about that conversation. She confesses about the pregnancy that she told Peter about it today. And he's like, uh, that him saying that we can't kill the baby is a strange way of putting it. And she's like, well, he's an artist. He's very high strung. She's like, he's like neurotic. She's like, no, not really. <laughs> uh, he wants her to tell him everything about it, because if it turns out that it is Peter, then he needs to get help immediately. And was Peter there during any of the calls? And uh, while this is happening, we see a shadow moving around behind Jess and Phil. And she says, he was there during a call. It couldn't be him. And we're like, oh, shit. (laughs) Um, when When he gets like this, he usually goes to the music hall. And uh, they hang up the phone. Phil's like, I knew it couldn't be Peter. Uh, Just then someone peeks in the window at Phil. Uh, It turns out it's a door-to-door search party with guns. Yeah, a little bit more uh, comedy relief. Yeah, comedy relief. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yeah, and it's two weird guys that just want to ask them if everything's okay, remind them to lock all the windows and doors, and then they're just like trying to get those guys to go away, and those guys are being really weird. Yeah, it's one of those wacky scenes where they keep trying to close the door and the guy says one more thing over and over. Yeah, yeah, over and over. Like, uh, like, and be sure to cl- uh, lock all the windows and doors. And they're like, okay, yes. And oh, and don't forget about this. Uh-huh, yeah. And oh, and don't forget to lock the windows and doors. Oh, okay. It's very strange. And then from, like, once they do get the cl- door closed, we see the guys outside giggling to each other. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like the merry pranksters running around with shotguns. And in response to this giggling, Phil says, I'd rather face the killer than, you know, those two guys. <laughs> they have a they have a hearty chortle. Yeah. But then Jess is like, but seriously, uh, this is the only door that's locked in the whole house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. So so then we get uh, we see uh, Phil and Jess going around the house, locking all the doors and windows while the camera zooms in on our ability to see candlelight from the attic. Um, <laughs> Phil goes, oh, there's a, a Barb, the door to Barb's room has a wreath with little booze bottles on it. Uh, she sees that door move a little, so she goes into the room uh, to check on Barb or whatever, and we see the door close behind her. Yeah, bad, bad news for Phil. Possibly not great for Phil. 
Yeah. It switches, and now we're with Lieutenant Fuller, who has gone to the music hall, and he sees the smashed Steinway with the metal stanchions still, like, in it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, back at the house, uh, Jess is trying to find Phil. Phil won't answer. Uh, we see, from the Moaner's perspective, we see him making a call. She answers. Uh, he's saying, you fat pig, you bitch pig, look at you, little baby. No, Billy, no, ouch, help. Where's the baby? You left Billy alone with Agnes. I know you're there, nasty Billy. Give mommy the baby. Jeez. And we see more of Lineman Graham trying to trace the call to which it like goes through shot after shot after shot moving through the line and it's we find out it's someone inside the house oh no this is where the trope inside the house the call is coming from inside of the house yeah used to great effect in later movies fantastic yeah it's a great moment it's really creepy yeah <laughs> especially considering that you know anyway but it still works we just moved out of the phase where we really began to suspect it was peter but it's still like mm, i don't remember peter being there right uh they go uh, to see the the cop that was posted outside we see that that cop is dead with his neck cut open which is very like in death dream the um uh there's like an almost like shot for shot take i think with the truck driver oh yeah and that weird milky blood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the quote unquote wound on the neck. Yeah. Lieutenant Fuller tells Sergeant Nash to call Jess, get her to exit the house. Don't tell her that the call is coming from inside the house. Don't give her any reason to panic. Just get her to go straight out of the house. Jess still inside the house. She can't get Phil to answer her. The phone rings. She answers the phone. Sergeant Nash, do exactly as I tell you. No questions, he says. You know, leave the house. And she's like, oh, okay, I'll go get Phil and Barbie. He's like, no, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Just put the phone down and exit the house. Don't go upstairs. Just leave the house. And she's like, mm, I'm going to get Phil and Barb. He's like, no, but listen. To <laughs> don't fear for my script. I'm not very intelligent. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> The calls are coming from inside the house. Don't go upstairs. And she's like, oh, shit. And hangs up the phone, goes upstairs. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, Phil Barb, please answer me. She grabs the good old fireplace poker. And this one's a real sturdy one, too. Like, it's not the cheap modern day pokers. This one looks like it means business. Yeah, this thing was like solid iron. Yeah. She goes upstairs with the with the poker and she finds Phil and Barb dead, draped across each other on Barb's bed. And then she sees the moaner peeking at her through a, a little opening in a doorway. And it is super creepy because there's like some business going on with his eyeball that I do not understand. His eye is very strange. Yeah, it, it almost looks like there's a small contact lens in front of his too big eye so it's like there's two different irises or something yeah that's what i thought yeah it, it looks crazy it's fantastic no it's idea really great did. i don't know how they did it either but the other thing that's weird is then when you see peter's eyes later he has blue eyes so i was like well i guess it's not peter i don't know what the hell's going on now yeah well fuck there's my theory <laughs> shit uh, she slams the door on him, which very much upsets him. 
<laughs> yeah, he's not happy. Yeah, he screams. She runs down the stairs. He grabs a handful of her hair. She gets away, runs to the basement, locks the door, and he starts smashing into the door, trying to knock it down, but eventually stops and goes away. Uh, we hear the front door of the house open and close. Uh, we see that the cops are on the way. She 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 sees a shadow trying to get into the basement through the basement windows. Um, and we see that it's Peter. Uh, he breaks the glass, climbs in. Jess, why don't you answer me? Uh, he approaches her. He's all like hunched over, super like creepy, classical, like hammer movie style, looming and menacing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And outside the house, we see uh, police cars screeching to a halt, sirens going. And even over all of this, we can hear her screaming over the sound of all this, even though she's in the basement, the fire distant house, just screaming, crazy, bloody murder. The cops bust down the door to the basement. They find her kind of out of it with Peter's dead body draped across her lap. She killed him. Yeah, that's quality final girl action there. Killed the shit out of Peter with a fireplace poker. I don't know if any other movie has it where the fireplace poker actually works. <laughs> I know, it's true. It always breaks. Or She <laughs> kills Peter on the head, I guess, with the fireplace poker because we see his head bleeding. Yeah, she straight up kills Peter with, a, with the poker. It's yeah. great. Fantastic. Good job. <laughs> Good work. We love you. Yes. <laughs> Fuck Peter to death with that. <laughs> then it, it turns into the cops just trying to like put the pieces together. Why would Peter start killing people? Uh, they, it turns out they've sedated her. She's asleep in a bed. The doctor says he'll stay with her. Uh, they talk about alerting uh, the other girl's parents so that they can identify the bodies. And they say all of this in front of Mr. Harrison, who still hasn't found his daughter, and he faints. And so since he faints, <laughs> instead of I'll stay with her, they busily hustle him off to the hospital. Everyone is gone. The house goes quiet. The last cop turns off the light in the room that she's sleeping in, exits the house, the house is now empty, except for Jess. Uh, we hear the piano string effects go. The camera pans around the house. We hear laughing. We see that the moaner is still upstairs with the still undiscovered Claire and Mrs. Mac bodies. And we hear him say, Agnes, it's me, Billy. And the camera <laughs> zooms out from Claire through the window outside and into the night. Very Death Dream-esque. Uh, we see that there is a cop on the stoop. We hear inside the phone ringing, and the cop does nothing. He just stands around. He's preventing people from going into or out of the front door, and the credits roll. And as the credits roll, the phone ring gets louder and louder. It's fantastic. Another thing that I thought was really good is, like, it's so zoomed out that the cop is just, like, a little part of the screen, and we mm -hmm. like you're drawn to look at him. Mm -hmm. see whether or not he's going to go inside. And yeah. as that's happening, that's when the credits roll. And where he is on the screen is where all of the names of the actors and everything is. So it's like forcing you to look at these people's names because you're just trying to see whether or not he's going to go inside. <laughs> right. I thought that was brilliant. And no, he does not. No, no, he doesn't. But it's a great it's a great ending the way it I mean, it just looks great. It's 
you know, again, it's shot well. It's like aesthetically, it's a great ending. Just like Death Dream, great, great final moments. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But yeah, so that's uh, Bob Clark's Black Christmas. Yeah, it's known as a classic and it deserves it because it is fucking classic. Yeah, it kicks ass. It is, uh, it, it's, you know, considered to be the, the first slasher movie or at least one of the first slasher movies. Bob Clark himself said they were trying to do you know, he was trying to do something new with existing stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. apparently this was inspired by a like urban legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it is great. It is. I would say maybe I think it might be my favorite slasher movie, at least it's definitely in like, I don't I would have a hard time not including it in my like top 10 horror movies of all time. It is enormously great yeah it, it's fantastic i mean it's it, it you know there were other movies before this that would have killers that were you know like there was peep show in and there was i guess even texas chainsaw massacre but um but this is really this the before texas chainsaw was massacre. it i think so. maybe so let me but check. this is the first one that that really kind of established this you know a lot of the things that would show up later in in slasher films, but so much of that stuff is established in this movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, this I is mean, the same year as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Ah, okay. Fantastic. Yeah, what a year. 74, yeah. I know this movie had a profound impact on John Carpenter. I mean, he loved it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he really, you know, it had it had a real heavy influence on him. I mean, there was a lot, a, a lot of stuff, I think, that that, you know, he may have inadvertently or, or intentionally borrowed, you know, just the first person point of view and, you know, some of the other, some, some of the, just the, the creepiness of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a great movie. It it really, so much of modern film, particularly in the slasher genre, but so much of modern horror film is, it owes a a huge debt to this movie. Absolutely. And I mean, you can, you can see the Giallo influence of it, but I love the way that he like specifically deviated from it. We even saw that influence in death dream where he's got like the gloves and everything. And in this one, he like purposefully went with the, just the big naked hands. Mm -hmm. And not only just like slasher, like there's a whole like subset of just like a guy kills girls at a sorority house or a sleepover. It's, it's just branched off into so many different things. And, uh, it's it's fucking amazing and it's so well done it's not even just that it's like the first it's that it it really is better than almost everything else oh yeah yeah i mean like compared to say the friday the 13th movies which have they certainly have their own charm but they're they're pretty much just straight schlock yeah and this and this movie you know it it kind of combines different there's camp and there's there's comedy and and uh you know there's there's obviously just the straight up like tropes tropes that would be borrowed later but it doesn't devolve into any one particular genre and it and it blends the the different subgenres together so well yeah it's it's incredible i mean it's very it's 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 hard to see something like this and realize how original it is when you've seen everything that that's come since but you know, anytime you stop and kind of think about what you're seeing, it just it dawns on you that this is the first guy that did all this shit. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, and I mean, it, it I mean, he basically, you know, he, he invented an entire genre and a, and 
you know, arguably the most successful genre in horror. And I want to just point out that, like, on top of all of this stuff, this movie is, like, way ahead of its time in feminism. Like, true, this movie is ultra feminist, like, just in your face, surprisingly feminist. There's all of these different male characters that are that are putting uh, expectations, commands, limitations, and physical violence onto women. And mm-hmm. it's it's just like all there. You've got Mr. Harrison, which is this weird patriarchy. You've got uh, Peter, who is uh, like passing along his his despair at not being good enough of a man in the eyes of other important men, and then like taking that out on Jess. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got uh, Sergeant Nash, who is like a lot of a lot of harm comes to women because of his incompetence. Uh, right. It's just it's just all over the place. It is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it's 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 really amazing. I loved it. I don't have enough great adjectives for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's incredibly uh it's incredibly well done. I mean, it's such a I don't know. I I I thought it was amazing. For me watching watching this through that lens of this is a feminist movie uh Mm -hmm. that gave like i watched porkies for the first time because of watching this movie and so i had my eyeballs peeled for um for gender studies topics and the whole fucking thing is just masculinity studies it is like it is textbook and it is amazing oh yeah it's yeah it's just I, i mean again he he essentially created that whole genre as well yeah yeah the 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 like raunchy like horny young boy comedy like exploits uh it's great and that movie is like subverting you know um the the wholesome 1950s idea it's it's like, exactly it's like uh it's taking like the idea of happy days and being like no no no, no. it was like all dicks and stuff yeah, they weren't. It wasn't this all. Well, golly gee, Mister Smith, mm-hmm. and all that kind of crap that you see from the fifties. That these were real people doing real people stuff. Yeah, horrible stuff. <laughs> yeah, horrible shit, just like real people do. Yeah, it's a, it's incredible. I, I, one of the things that I will one day when this podcast is over, I will have walked away with that will have made my life better is realizing that Bob Clark is amazing, and I had no idea before. Yeah, I didn't either, and and I had seen some of his stuff. I know, including Black Christmas, but I, I that was a long time ago, and I, I honestly just I liked it, but I just didn't appreciate what it was, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. I'm going to be seeking out and watching more, possibly getting disappointed once we get towards Super Babies, <laughs> Baby Geniuses <laughs> Two, but you know, yeah, yeah, got it. It's a living. <laughs> That's right. O's got to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so john if you had to give this movie a, a a rating between zero and five rating zero being this is not a movie and it was terrible and i hate it and five being an absolute masterpiece of horror cinema how would you rate this movie uh, absolutely a five yeah no question yeah i'm i'm in the same boat this is a five out of five this is perfection yeah, I mean, this is this is as good as a horror film is going to get. It's incredible. It has aged well while still being a relic. You know, like a lot of the things in here aren't as surprising as they used to be. Like, right. I really had to 
stretch my imagination to think that it was actually Peter, because obviously it's not Peter. But the mm-hmm. one movie wanted you to, you know, suspect that it was Peter. But even even with that, it's still it's still incredible. You know, it's 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 a relic of its time in in a variety of ways, but it is no less surprising or uh, effective for it. And it's, you know, I mean, you have to consider at, at this point in in horror film, as you had mentioned, this is the same year that Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out. And Texas Chainsaw is a is a film unlike any other yep. film. <laughs> I mean, it it stands alone almost as a genre unto itself. It it covers so much ground. I think it would be impossible to you know overstate it. Yep. And and this movie too. I mean, these are. You know, these were these were movies that were pretty singular at the time that they came out. They didn't they weren't really referencing much other than maybe stylistically. You know, you could you could point to some stylistic references. But as far as what they're the stories they're telling and the way that they're telling these stories, these are I mean, they're just it's it's impossible to overstate the importance of them looking yeah. at looking back, you know, where we are now um, and man, what a change. I mean, what a, what a different way to tell a story, yes. you know, that, you know, here's this, I mean, just even the way that it ends, we, you, you have no idea who the killer is. Yeah. No, it's just, it's just some guy maybe named Billy. Yeah. Who's, who's insane. Yeah. Like completely pathological who has this, this horrible familial obsession with his past and, you know, the whole thing, and he's playing all this stuff out, and there's no explanation as to why this has happened, why you know he's in this town, did he grow up there? Nothing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we don't. We don't know why he picked this house. Uh, it yeah. looks like he just happened to walk up to it. Although, like being in like his fascination with the rocking chair and and like the doll, it's like maybe maybe this used to be his house, but we don't know. We're not given anything like that. We don't even know if he murdered Janice. Yeah. That's true. We we don't know if he murdered Janice, if he's raping townies. We have no idea. No idea. We don't even like we know that there was like something with his uh, or or we would assume with his parents and with baby Agnes, but we don't know. I mean, for, for all we know, he could be Agnes and not Billy. Like there is, yeah. there is nothing there and we don't get it. I mean, maybe him being Agnes is a little bit of a stretch, but obviously like there's, there is some trauma there and it is something that he's like reliving and acting out maybe, but you don't know. It's fantastic. And she's almost it, definitely yeah. dead. Like he's, Almost yeah. certainly in there killing Jess at the end of the movie. Yeah. And it's it's crazy because, you know, I mean, there's there's no explanation given, which, you know, nowadays it's still not – it's still a less common way of telling those kinds of stories. But it it, it is used a lot, obviously, now where you don't – There's a, maybe there's a stupid twist and ultimately you don't know who the killer is or whatever. But – this, you know, at the time, like in 1974, I don't think it was really that common to have an ending be so, I guess, in, in a way that would be considered unsatisfying, where he doesn't even hint who it is. I mean, there's, you know, you, I guess, you know, you're led to believe that it's Peter, but once you realize it's not Peter, you have no fucking clue who this guy is. Yeah. That's pretty nihilistic. <laughs> <laughs> super fucked up and super amazing. I've, I mean, I've, you've, you've, I've seen movies where like, oh, it turns out that you don't really know by the end, but it, it's always just like unsatisfying. This one is just 
crushing. Yeah, it's actually it's actually really disturbing. As comical as his voices or his many voices are, um, you know, ultimately he's just a cipher, and that's pretty scary. And and the influence the influence on everything. I mean, you know, every year now a hundred or more movies like this come out, movies influenced by this. So it's it's one way to look at its influence on on the genre as a whole and, and creating its own subgenres. But also if you look at it the other way and like try to <laughs> try to watch movies from before 1974 and find mm-hmm. anything like this, it's just barren. And the whole idea of horror movies before uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and before this were just so much more boring most of the time. <laughs> I mean, t- Texas Chainsaw Massacre was like, you know, like life changing for me when I saw it. I, I, it was, it was like, you know, it was like a, just a little slice of perfection. I had, I'd never seen anything like it. It was so wonderful. <laughs> John, I'm going to have to tell you something now. See? I've never seen the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, really? I have never seen it. I don't even think... No, I have seen... I saw the remake with Jessica Biel in it. That's all. Yeah. I, yeah. I haven't even seen 2, which I know is also famous. 2 is great. It's a it's a different kind of movie, but it's great. Yeah, I know it's, that's when they're like, what if we made a sequel, but it's a comedy? Yeah, but it's it's but it's still creepy in its own way. It's fantastic. Excellent. We will oh, have you, to you've gotta <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you've gotta watch it. You've gotta watch it. It's it's obviously, but I mean it's even if it was just for his history's sake and you you knew it was gonna be bad, you'd have to watch it. But yeah. <laughs> it's fucking great. Awesome. <laughs> so this I believe is our first ten out of ten, John. Is it really? I think so. I think the the only other time either of us have given something a five, the other one has been like, meh. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. But I don't even think we've had very many fives. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, this one is totally deserving of that. I think I think that's a, this is a ten rating that we can com- like proudly stand by. Oh yeah, I, like if anyone was like, yeah, but what about this? I'd be like, oh come on, you're just like what the townie thing. That's not a reason to knock off a point. Yeah, what about kiss my ass? <laughs> <laughs> let's see yeah uh death dream uh that was nine out of ten we've had lots of nine out of tens but no this is our this is our first 10 out of 10 yeah i think sometimes there's a you know we we watch one and it it has a you know personally hits us in some way and we give it a five but the other guy really likes it too but isn't willing to go quite that far yeah but this is one of those ones where it's like fuck that this movie's as good as it's gonna get yeah, that nothing is <laughs> There's very, very few horror movies out there that are as good as this movie. I mean, do if I want to nitpick, I can say little things like there's a scene where you can see the camera reflected in a picture. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> things like that. But, you know, give me a break. I mean, this it was great. It was so good. It didn't even take me out of it. No. Yeah, it, it is great. I, I watched this movie <laughs> t- uh, multiple times to review this movie. Yeah, and I would gladly just go ahead and watch it again. It, it is it is great, beat for beat. It is just enjoyable, fantastic. It's great. Yeah, this is going to be one that I watch every Christmas for sure. Yes, apparently uh, the the lore is that this was Elvis's favorite horror movie, and that as a tradition, he watched it every Christmas. There you go. Which by that it would mean three Christmases until he died. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Every Christmas for three Christmases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
So I know that. Uh, yeah, I was I was reading on uh, online that uh, Steve Martin loved this movie as well. Or yeah. Loves this movie. Yes, and uh, uh, there was even a thing where he. Um, told that to uh, uh, Olivia Hussey. He was like, oh my God, I loved you in, and she thought he was going to say Romeo and Juliet, and then instead oh, that's he right. said Black Christmas. It's Black Christmas. I've seen it 27 times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, from Steve Martin, that could just be a joke that he was making. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, they, they, were, they were originally going to hire Gilda Radner to play Phyllis. Uh, I could see it. I mean, yeah, that's crazy. I guess that he she had, had to... a visual. <laughs> wow, she dropped out. Yeah, to to do because she had to. She had commitments to SNL. Oh, I love all this stuff. That's crazy that uh, the SNL person uh, ended up getting replaced by the SCTV person. Wow. Yeah, I know. They offered uh, they offered Betty Davis originally the role of Mrs. Mack. Oh, that would not have been as good. No, and she turned it down, and. Uh, Thank God she did, because man, what's her nuts was great. Oh yeah, she is she is fantastic. I I I mean, none of none of these people. It's like happy to see them die, but like with her, I was like, oh no, no more Mrs. Max shenanigans. <laughs> Took forty days to make this movie. Forty days to shoot it. Wow, that's uh, and, relatively long for our low budget movies. I know. And the I'm just reading off some of this trivia. This is great stuff. Uh, the actor that that played Billy for the for the voice parts that they recorded of his, mm-hmm. they would have him stand on his head so that it would com- compress the thorax in his neck <laughs> and give him that weird raspy voice. Oh, is it called a thorax? Apparently, according okay. to this, according to this comment. Oh, neat. <laughs> yeah, all kinds of crazy shit. Fantastic. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so instead of doing our normal business, uh, part part of the cool scheme that was devised um, is uh, I, I I had I before I saw this movie I saw the remake of it the 2006 remake by Glenn Morgan and um, that got me thinking uh, because I know that just recently there was another remake in 2019 by Sophia Takal so we decided that as a Christmas treat for us and for our listeners that uh, we would release uh, three episodes in December instead of the two that would be scheduled and we're going to cover Black Christmas by Bob Clark, Black Christmas by Glenn Morgan and Black Christmas by Sophia Takal so tune in again next week whenever we cover the first remake of Black Christmas by Glenn Morgan, uh, starring a bunch of kind of famous people. Yeah. Um, including Andrea Martin, who played Phyllis That's in this right. movie, and she's going to be Miss Mac in in the remake, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. I think she's the only I think she's the only actress that carried over into the next one, right? I think so, yes. Or actor. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, apparently the the 2006 was um, Glenn Morgan, like, consulted with Bob Clark. He was, uh, so the idea behind the 2006 remake is we're not just going to do, like, a shot for shot because that would be boring. So what we want to do is we want to dive deeper into who the fuck Billy is and what the hell is going on. 
Yeah, I mean that, that you could see that coming a mile away. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the 2006 remake, it's going to be the you know the the same kind of storyline, but we're going to get more of the backstory, finding out who Billy is, who Agnes is, and all kinds of stuff with that. And while it's uh, <laughs> while it's maybe not the same kind of upsetting as the original, it is upsetting in brand new ways. <laughs> I have not seen it, so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, man. I had to see it because I had a huge crush on Michelle Trachtenberg, who was in this movie. Oh, nice. (laughs) So uh, go ahead, listener, dear sweet listener, and go watch uh, the 2006 Black Christmas by Glenn Morgan and tune in one week from today, not to Ooh, Christmas Gift. There goes the entire audience. (laughs) Well, at least it happened at the end. (laughs) And you can reach out to us to tell us uh, any number of things about this movie, the movies that we're about to watch, or any other movies that you think we should watch by... uh, You can reach us at Twitter and Instagram at LoathsomePod. You can reach us uh, on Facebook at LoathsomeThings. And through this magical uh, pod catching service that you use to earball us right now, you could give us a rating of five stars or maybe even like send a link to people and be like, Hey, I like listening to these guys. And so would you, uh, and that would be neat. We would love that. Yes. John, if you still have it up, do you have another neat piece of black Christmas trivia for us? Well, let's see. Let, uh, here, here's a tasty little, Ooh. tasty little tr- uh, tidbit. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Phyllis is often assumed to be possibly Jewish, okay. based on her Semitic appearance, oh. including including her hair. Oh, okay. Her last name Carlson, however, is not a typically Jewish name, but rather Swedish. The actress Andrea Martin is Armenian in real life. What the hell kind of trivia is that? <laughs> I, I didn't consider her to be Jewish. I did, however, refer to her in my notes as Octofro because she, she had those octagonal glasses. I liked the glasses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's weird. So uh, Phyllis is often considered by my friends and I who talk about such things to be Jewish, mm-hmm. I guess, is what that trivia is trying to say. <laughs> yes. Like, I'm not sure by who it would be considered. But most importantly... The actress Andrea Martin is Armenian (laughs) in real life. Yeah, Just in case you're worried, she's not a Jew, you guys. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Thank God. Armenian, yeah. Wow. So, uh, so, uh, not so many. Isn't that weird? From different massacred people. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. The, The character, the, 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 character or the idea of the story a bit was kind of loosely based uh, at least influenced uh, Bob Clark to come up with an idea of having a serial killer movie based on a Canadian serial killer named Wayne Bowden. Some people have found uh, kind of a, a com- comparisons between the way that he talks on the phone, Billy talks on the phone and this uh, serial killer that was referred to as the uh, what they call him the weepy the weepy something killer who would call people and then 
do this weird, like pathetic crying thing over the phone. And, and at least once he was recorded, he was called the weepy voiced killer. Wow. <laughs> he was originally, and he was caught. His name was Paul Michael Stephanie or Stefani, I guess. And, and uh, he, yeah, he would call the, that's what it was. He would call the police after killing people to, you know, confess his murderers. And then he would like, I had to kill her. I don't know if I can stop. It's really bizarre. And those recordings are out there. Wow. I don't hear that. They're very disturbing. I know there was one year where they were going to air this movie on NBC. And then they decided not to because some girls had been killed and other girls assaulted at a sorority house. And so they decided not to air it. And then it turned out that that incident was uh, a few of the Ted Bundy murders. Yeah, that was when Bundy had escaped from a, a Utah jail and made his way down to Florida and attacked the, the sorority in that weird m- murder frenzy that he had where he out completely out of control, tried to kill basically every girl in a sorority house. And that happened two weeks before the film was was supposed to be released on American television. Well, then they changed the name for TV, wasn't it? Like a house full of killer or something dumb like that? Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, weak. Have you seen, this is just so weird and tangential, but have you seen, did you see a while back people were, um, there's like, there was a new Ted Bundy movie and it's like Ted, sexy Ted Bundy. And apparently like that's a thing is that people try to portray Ted Bundy as like the sex guy, the sexy serial killer and other people are like, no, he's ugly. (laughs) This is a topic. Yeah, he was, well, he was considered kind of handsome men at the time, you know, and, and like all serial killers, he had his cultish following of, uh, you know, that's kind of a weird mm-hmm. phenomenon that where women will be a certain type of woman might be drawn to a, a, a guy like this. I think we used to work <laughs> with one. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's kind of a thing. And he ended up marrying one of them. But uh, but, you know, given that there's a there's a documentary that's out about him and kind of, you know, explores, you know, a little bit more of of it, it's from the point of view of someone that was his long term girlfriend who had no idea and was basically discovered who he was through the process of his court case. And uh, yeah. And you know, you get a kind of a, you hear, if you hear some of the tapes of him talking and stuff, you, you really get, you know, you realize how, just how absolutely horrible this person was. I mean, he was, he was like, even for people like that, he was beyond, I mean, he was just so depraved, but yeah. So anyways, yeah. So there was some overlap with the, the TV release of this. Wow. I think there's a TV edit going around of of it too. Of this movie. Yeah, I believe so. That could only be worse. I think it's funny. Like they, they wanted, you know, like there were lots of things that Bob Clark did in this movie that people got mad about, like not revealing who Billy was. And Mm -hmm. uh, also apparently like the original script was going to be more gruesome with like more, explicit shots of the death and he decided against that because it he felt that it made it stronger to just get these little bits of the kill and and i completely agree like i didn't need to see phyllis die no you really don't i mean it's not it's it's gore has become a thing in film and and it's used in a in a 
it's used in a lot of different ways for different reasons now. But at the same time, I mean, that decision that he made, I think it was a wise decision. Yeah. Particularly at that time, you know, I think he, he also consciously made the decision not to have the girls running around with their clothes off and stuff. He didn't want to, that's true, you know, to devolve into that obvious idea of, of the, oh, look, we've got co-eds. Here's an excuse to have them all, you know, like take a group shower or some dumb shit that they would never do. Yeah. Yeah. He saved all that for Porky's. <laughs> yeah. He certainly, <laughs> certainly held out until Porky's. <laughs> It's fantastic. Yeah, this movie is as as intense and in your face as it was for the time. It's also so understated and and I don't know. It's exquisite. Yeah, go watch it. Go watch it again. Because you wouldn't have gotten this far if you hadn't watched it, right? Yeah, you <laughs> stupid person without a microphone. What are you even doing here? <laughs> Uh, with that, John, do you have any final thoughts before we leave the people to do one exact week of other things before they listen to us again? No, uh, I hope you're enjoying your holiday season Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, we look forward to coming back here and, uh, talking about a almost certainly less great film. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. you're not wrong (laughs) yeah yeah folks uh don't don't uh don't get your hopes up that we're gonna think that these remakes are also tens out of tens because they might not be but also yes do get your christmas shopping finished because uh capitalism needs to keep chugging along Oh, does it ever? Yeah. If you don't overspend, everything might fall apart. Yeah. That's it. Then the terrorists have won. Oh, shit. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening. And uh, as always, go watch horror movies. Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) 